Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 28 is where we pick back up. And for sake of context, this chapter 28 sort of gives to us sort of these blessings and cursings regarding the nation of Israel and in response to their obedience to God or their disobedience to God and his ways. Uh, the verse certainly I think that comes to mind as you look at this particular section here in Deuteronomy is that proverb where it says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, God declares, but sin becomes a reproach to any people, to any nation. And certainly this chapter is one of those kind of chapters that almost sort of gives an illustration, a commentary of that as God speaking through Moses here to the nation of Israel. They're about to go in and establish themselves in the land, if you would, uh, establish themselves on soil, a homeland, and really begin to, uh, in a sense, foundationally begin to establish themselves as a people in a nation with a national identity and a national homeland, uh, God reminds them of this very reality. Now, last time we went in chapter 28 down as far as verse 14, as God spoke about the blessings, but as there's kind of a continuity to what we're looking at. I just want to read verses 1 through 14 uh, to you to just sort of refresh the context of what we're saying here, and then we'll go in moving further afterwards. Since we already looked at it, we'll uh, just go on with verse 15. So let's just read the first 14 verses to kind of see what God is saying where we left off. Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So they would be a nation that would be exalted. And all these blessings, God said, shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey, notice, the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your womb or of your body, the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out. So their economy would be blessed. Their endeavors would be blessed. Whether they're in the rural area or the city area, God's blessings would be upon them as they obeyed God's voice and his word. Verse 7, he says as well, military success. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And the Lord will command, I like that, verse 8, the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all which you set your hand to, he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of your ground and in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. 
And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. The idea is that they would be in the lead rather than those who were followers as a people nationally. You shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today and are careful to observe them. And then he says, verse 14, where we left off last time, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods and to serve them. So God begins by speaking to the Jewish people of the nation of Israel, telling them emphatically that he wants to bless their nation. That that is the desire of God, that God's heart, because he's a good God, he's a gracious father, he is a benevolent, giving generous God that he wanted them to be blessed that was his heart that was his desire and God said that will be in direct proportion to your obedience to me it was a conditional covenant with the nation of Israel as a people and as they were in the land that if they obeyed God it would bring blessing upon their lives that it would allow God in a sense if you understand to do what he wants to do for them which was to bless them if they would keep themselves, if you would say it this way, in a blessable condition. If they would obey God's word, if they would follow his will and his ways, if they would obey his voice as he directed them as, in a sense, the ruler of their nation, they would be blessed in their economy. They'd be strong and blessed militarily. They would be a lead among the nations around them, and they would experience the blessings of God in every facet and sphere of their lives. And this is what God wanted for them as a nation. Now, God is going to say in the remainder of the chapter, and it's somewhat tragic, the remainder of the chapter shows the other side of that. And it's, I'll say in advance, almost somewhat of a difficult text to work its way through. Uh, it's something that as you read it, you think the reality that God holds back and does, or does not hold back and does not mince words when he speaks about the stark reality of the other side of what can be experienced in a nation when people turn away from him. And they cast aside God's word and they disregard what pleases God or what would honor God. And they, they follow the dictates of their own heart and how the very opposite begins to happen. How they, in a sense, bring a curse upon themselves. So rather than thriving and excelling and being blessed, instead they struggle and they flounder and they begin to deteriorate and fall apart because of the, the, the consequential and circumstantial problems they bring upon themselves. And, and here, as we read this, we begin to see the other side of it. Now, God says in verse 15, but it shall come to pass. In other words, in the same way, you'll be blessed as a nation if you obey me. It shall come to pass. It can be assured just as much. If he says, verse 15, you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So he, he speaks here of how in the exact opposite of the blessing that they would bring a curse upon themselves as a people and as a nation. And, and in some ways you can almost look at uh, the term curse as basically God saying it will be the retraction of my favor. I'll, I'll withdraw my blessing. That, that's why they would be cursed. 
God simply just withdraws his favor. He withdraws his kindness and his blessing in the sense that he would have blessed them. And again, keep in mind, this is a conditional covenant. It's under the law. Things were conditional under the law. Thanks be to God that we don't live under the law. Uh, Thanks be to God that we live under the grace of Jesus Christ. But for Israel, this was a conditional thing. If they obeyed, blessing would be, in a sense, experienced. If they disobeyed, they would bring the consequences and the curse upon themselves and God would pull back his blessing. And in a sense, they would really grieve the heart of God more than anything else because God wouldn't be able to do for them what he wanted to do for them, which was to bless them. And so God says here, listen, no, it shall come to pass If you disobey the voice of the Lord, if you don't carefully follow his commandments, he says, then all these now curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now, I just wanted you to take note of something in verse 15. Certainly, these are speaking of national things. But I just want to say this as we begin to run through these difficult section of verses now. How important is it really to obey the voice of God? I want you to ponder that. How important really is it to not become comfortable with disobeying God's voice. Because a lot of times people want to begin to almost make light of, well, what's the big deal? I mean, yes, so yeah, I'm disobeying God. What's the big deal? I mean, yeah, I, I know the right thing to do, but I don't feel like doing it. What's the big deal if I don't obey God's voice when God speaks to me in my conscience of what's right or wrong? What's the big deal if I don't obey the word of God Well, I want you to, as we read through these verses, come to the reality that it's a very big deal because the condition and the depravity to which we can sink to when we become comfortable disobeying God's voice and disobeying God's word is a really, really low place. And quite frankly, it's probably a lot lower than most of us think we have the potential to go to. Because when we get to the end of the chapter and God starts speaking about some rather uh, atrocious things that they would do, I assure you that the people, when they heard these things initially, thought there is no way we would ever do that. God's going to tell them that they'll begin to become cannibals and eat their own children. And you know people, come on, there's no way I would do that. And the reality is, is, yeah, the beginning stages, but incrementally, if you disobey and quench God's voice and resist his word and you shut out the light, the darkness just begins to overtake and there's no telling the depravity of where a people or where a nation can ultimately go through. So he begins to now speak of the curses that would come upon them. And you'll notice these really are in many ways just repetitious of what we just read. He says, verse 16, cursed shall you be in the city. And cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. So you notice there, verse 16 through 19, in a lot of ways, are basically just a repetition of what we saw back in verses 5, 6, and 7 of the chapter where God said that he would bless these different areas. And basically God's saying there will be a reversal of the blessings that were brought upon you, a withholding of God's favor. And basically what's described here is, notice that every area God's saying where you were once blessed, now it'll be cursed instead. Every area where you were once experiencing the blessing of God and the favor of God, now that will be withdrawn and ascend those same areas economically, militarily, in your produce, in in your endeavors, God says, you'll begin to experience a lack of my favor and it will be cursed 
and it will be something that's difficult and a struggle instead. Verse 20, he says, the Lord, notice, will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to. That doesn't sound very enjoyable. Until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. So notice there verse 20 describes how God would in a sense, he's describing here, send resistance and send frustration against whatever it was they were endeavoring to do. He says, in whatever you set your hand to do, instead there'll be curse and confusion and difficulty and struggle and, and there'll be a resistance to everything they put their hand forth to try and do. And he says, the reason for this is because of the wickedness of their doings. And look what God describes, verse 20, as wickedness of, of people in which you have forsaken me. Again, a, a nation that forsakes their God, a nation that does not honor God or regard God's authority or, or his hand upon them as a sovereign ruler. Verse 21, the Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land to which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with the scorching and the mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. So notice sickness, health issues, health epidemics, plagues, things that would just destroy them as a nation described there. God saying these things would begin to come upon them as the repercussions, ultimately the symptoms and the consequences of turning away from God. They would begin to suffer these things. Verse 23 says, and, and your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze. The idea is, you know, sealed up and, and hardened. Uh, and the earth which is under you shall be like iron. Again, trying to, in an agrarian people, to stick your shovel into iron rather than in soil or to try and plow that ground or to, or to get it to be productive for your crops, for provision. God says, the heavens will be like bronze. The earth beneath you will be like iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heavens it shall come down on you until you are destroyed so again here it's being described how the land notice would be extremely hard to live upon things would become very difficult it would be hard not only to succeed but it would be hard to actually survive Again, he says it will become very hard and constantly a struggle. The ground will be like iron. The heavens will be like bronze. He says, I'll change the rain instead of the rain that you need to have fertile crops and, and, and drink and so forth. He says it will become like powder and dust. The idea of the picture there is drought. Things would dry up. And again, as we look at all these things. Take notice, verse 21, the Lord, it says, will change the rain. So, so again, this is God, if you would, saying, listen, if you don't realize that I'm the one that's in control of all these things, I can change the dial real quick if necessary. And so God says here he would change the rain and the Lord can change things to make them much harder and much worse at any given point in time if he so chooses. If that's what it takes to correct a people or to get their attention or to cause them through suffering to have a realization that they're not headed in the right direction as a nation. 
to get them to awaken to the realities of their condition. And here God said that he would do this with Israel. And you see throughout the Old Testament, historically at times when they would turn away from God, these would be the experiences, famines and droughts and times of difficulty and when there would be no rain for seasons of time and and these struggles would come into their lives again as the direct result of their disobedience and turning away for God. And, And again, as we look at these kind of things, this is God speaking to the nation about consequences they would experience as a people in the land. But certainly we can look at these same things and in a spiritual sense, it's a very fitting picture of what comes into our lives when we begin to walk in sin. When we turn away from God or we begin to disregard God's voice or we take our little door of ba- detour and, and we start to backslide as a Christian or we, we walk away from the Lord, certainly some of us, we can look back in our lives before we were serving the Lord and, and we realize that, that this is often the, the symptomatic byproduct of living in sin and not honoring God. Life becomes difficult. It's hard. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. People may think, oh, well, no, it's fun. I get to do what I want. I'm free. The reality is, I tell you this, I've lived that way for a while. It's hard. Life's not meant to be lived the way that God didn't intend. It may seem fun for the moment. It may seem pleasurable for just an hour. But the reality is, that kind of way of living is hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to succeed, succeed when you go contrary to the ways of God and you, and you watch how that type of a lifestyle unfolds down the road. Listen, look back in your own life at maybe those seasons when you recognize that or look at the lives of people who choose to in rebellion live contrary to God and, and look at the path. It's a hard path they go on. And they struggle and they go through difficulty and they strive and there's that constant difficulty. There's dryness. Their their life is like a drought and they're just struggling. And it pictures certainly what we often experience when we walk in sin and rebellion to God. Verse 25, he says, And the Lord also will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them and you shall flee or excuse me, shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth and your carcasses, their dead bodies from being defeated by their enemies, shall become food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and no one shall frighten them away. So the exact opposite, when they obeyed God, when they followed God's word and lived according to God's will, they were strong militarily. They were able to defeat their enemies. They were not vulnerable to enemy attack. And instead, they were successful and they were victorious in the same way when they turned away from God, they became weak militarily. And it did not matter what the numbers were or what their military strategy was because their strength militarily, their safety as a nation was based upon their trust and their confidence in relationship with God. And so God says here, one of the byproducts of turning away from him is that the nation would begin to be defeated before their enemies. They would become vulnerable to enemy attacks. They would begin to become weakened militarily and would begin to have failure rather than success and victory in their military endeavors. Verse 27, he says, And the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, with the scab and with the itch. Don't know what that is, but it don't sound pleasant. (laughs) That gives me enough reason right there to want to repent, you know, the itch. And from which, if that wasn't bad enough, you cannot be healed. So, again, you know, if you like the scab and the itch and the tumors, God bless you. Just sin away. You know what I mean? Just 
I mean, you know, it's just... But he said, look, these are things that would come upon them. Again, as God would pull back his hedge of protection, their health would deteriorate. They would find themselves dealing with conditions and problems. And because why? Because God pulls back his favor. He pulls back his protection. And he would allow the people to become vulnerable to some of the same diseases and sicknesses that they saw the Egyptians struggle with when they once lived in their land. And notice, they couldn't heal themselves. They couldn't fix themselves. Verse 28, what a description. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes around in darkness, not knowing how to find your way, just lost. And you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. Now again, what a fitting description of not only what would happen to them as a people nationally, but boy, that's a great description of what sin does in all of our lives. Sin has that effect. I mean, look at verse 28 there. The result of sin and disobeying God, they shall become mad and blind and confused in heart. What God's saying there is one of the effects of sin is basically just mental delusion. People lose their ability to be able to see clearly. They just become utterly confused and blind and completely, the word there says, mad. They literally lose their minds. And when a nation and a people begins to cast aside God and his authority and, and what God's way of doing things is in morality and spirituality and family and, and, and all these different areas, God says that is a pathway towards a nation that's literally going to become mad, confused, and walking around like a blind person just stumbling in the dark. Their judgment is flawed. They can't see straight and they will begin to be confused and won't know what is right from wrong and wrong from right. They'll call good evil and evil good. Do you see a little bit of a parallel even in some ways of ancient Israel and where our own country is today? That this becomes the byproduct of that? And listen, certainly it's true nationally, but those same things that are described there they can become the case for our lives spiritually when, when a person begins to walk in sin. This is the effects of sin. A, a person literally becomes mentally deluded. They become blinded by their sin and they don't see things clearly to make good decisions or good judgment. They, they literally experience confusion of heart. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion. One of the benefits of walking in a right relationship with the Lord is, is there's a sense of clarity in my life. There's a sense of clarity. I don't have to live like, you know, just a, a double-minded, confused, you know, this, that. I just, and, and you look at people who are not walking with the Lord and they're just, they're utter, they're utter confusion. They're unstable as can be. They're confused. They're blind. They're, they're just completely mad in the way that they reason things. You think, are you, where are your faculties? Why are you reasoning like that? Well, because sin has blinded them. And it deludes a person's ability to see correctly and causes them to grope around like a blind person. He says, verse 29 as well, you shall not prosper in your ways. And again, that's a good reminder. Not only a nation is that true, but it's true personally. God will not allow us to prosper if we live in sin. He won't bless sin. We may think for a while sometimes when we're in disobedience or rebellion that, oh, we're getting away. But the reality is, is listen, God cannot contradict who he is. God will not bless sin. He won't prosper it. 
We'll just struggle until ultimately we come to the reality that we're headed in the wrong direction. So verse 30, he then goes on, it gets worse as he describes what would happen to the nation of Israel. He says, you shall betroth a wife, that is get engaged to be married, but another man shall lie with her. Someone else would lie with your wife. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes and you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from you and you shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies. You shall have no one to rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. The idea is their sons and daughters captured, enslaved. And rather than being able to have their sons and their daughters live happy, healthy lives, instead, enemies foreign invaders would control their kids and would take them and enslave their children and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long again a parent's heart longing for you know their lost child that's been snatched away from them and there shall be no strength in your hands so he describes here in these verses how basically all their efforts will be in vain and they'll suffer nothing but loss they'll build a house somebody else will live in it They'll get engaged to one, but somebody else will take their wife and, and sleep with them. You'll have children, but they won't be yours to enjoy. They'll be stolen away from you. And basically, he describes how, again, the effects of disobedience to God would cause a life that, and a nation that would be vain. It would result in loss. They would be defeated and powerless, according to verse 32, powerless to resist or to do anything to change their circumstances. He says, you'll long to, to regain what you've lost but there shall be no strength in your hand because sin strips the power out of a person and sin strips the power out of a nation. Verse 33 says, A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually. And when you look throughout the history of Israel in the time of the judges and other times historically whenever they would turn away from God this is what would happen the Philistines and other nations they would come and they would produce their crops and then the other nations would just steal their crops away from them and they would be oppressed and ruled over like slaves verse 34 you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see the Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils which cannot be healed. And from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, the Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. So here Moses speaks prophetically in these verses under the inspiration of the spirit of what God saw would happen historically. And keep in mind, God's not just saying all these things to paint a really bleak picture. Unfortunately, with a heavy heart, God's saying all these things because these are things that would actually come to pass historically. He's trying to forewarn them because God saw that they would disobey and this would be the case. He describes here things that would happen to them, particularly how other nations would take over and control them. Verse 36, he describes how they as a nation and the king that they set over them would be taken away to serve foreign gods in a foreign nation of a people whose language they did not know. And certainly this is exactly what happens in the time of the Assyrian captivity when they conquered the northern kingdoms in 722 B.C. 
And then the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon in 586 BC and they're brought to a foreign land where they worship the idols of a foreign land and basically God allows them in a sense to, in a sense to have their own way. They become idolatrous. And so God says, look, okay, you really want idols? I'll send you to the land of idols for 70 years until you're sick and tired of idolatry. God says, you want to try it? I'll give you what you want. I will let you go to a foreign land where you will be ruled over like a slave and you'll give up all your freedom and your liberty and you can give up your life of being blessed and you can go be a slave in a foreign land and you can worship and serve all their idols. And for 70 years, God, in a sense, gave them sometimes what is the worst punishment? He gave them what they wanted. I'll give you what you want. You want to try it? Try it out for a while. See how it works for you. And God sends them to Babylon. He describes how even the king that they would set over them. At this time, they didn't have a king. But God knew ultimately in the days of Saul that they wouldn't desire to just have God as their sovereign ruler over them, but that they would want an earthly king and an earthly government to be like all the other nations. And God prophetically saw how they would desire a king. And likely here, even maybe an inference to King Zedekiah, who would ultimately be the last king of Judah to go into Babylon. And it's interesting, he describes verse 34, you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. The last thing that they did to King Zedekiah is they killed and murdered his own sons before him and then they put out his eyes and blinded him. And why did they do that? As a form of torture, so that basically the last image he ever saw was his own sons being murdered by a people who ruled over him and took over control of his life. And that was the last image that he ever had before his eyes were burned out. And, and you can imagine how, like as verse 34 says, you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes see. Imagine if that was the last thing you saw was somebody murder your kids and then they blinded you. And that was the last visual image that you had to deal with in your mind all the time. And again, these consequences, these outcomes, the fruit ultimately of disobeying God and where it led to for this nation of Israel. Verse 37, and you shall become an astonishment and a proverb and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you as they would be dispersed to other nations. It pictures humiliation. And disgrace, they would become a disgrace in the eyes of people who looked upon them in a very tragic and unfortunate way. And sin always brings humiliation. Sin always brings disgrace. Whether it's, again, upon a nation or whether it's upon an individual life, sin brings great humiliation and disgrace. You shall carry much seed out into the field, but gather in little. For the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards, verse 39, and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity." Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. Verse 43, interesting verse. The alien who is among you. Now, that's a reference to a foreigner. Someone who is not of the nation of Israel, a foreigner that was dwelling among them as a people. The foreigner who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall become down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, the leader, 
and you shall be the tail of the father. Isn't that interesting? God says to the nation of Israel, one of the marks that you're falling apart and failing as a nation is foreign people in your own country will rise above you as a national. And they'll begin to become more powerful than you are in your own nation. And they'll begin to control you. They'll begin to be the ones that lend to you and dictate to you what to do. And foreign people will, in a sense, be stronger and more powerful than you as the actual nationals in your own land. Very interesting. As this would happen to the nation of Israel, God saw these things unfolding among them. Verse 45, moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Notice that's repeated all throughout this chapter, the destructive effects of sin upon a nation and upon an individual life. Because you, again, here's the reason why. Because, verse 45, you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you and they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and upon your descendants forever. Again, can I state it? Look what we've read. Not like these are the most wonderful verses you're thinking, oh, this is very interesting. I'm sure none of these are your life verses. <laughs> Sure, nobody's life verses are about getting the itch and the scab and being struck with boils and plagues. But the reality, again, having read this, it almost seems somewhat redundant. But again, can I draw back the emphasis again? Is it important to obey the voice of the Lord? I would say it is. I would say it's a rather foolish mindset to say, well, who cares if I obey God or not? I would say there's a lot at stake. I would say there's a lot of potential pain and suffering and problems when we become comfortable disobeying God's voice and choose to just rebel against God and his word, it doesn't lead to a very pleasant life. It leads to a lot of pain and regret and problems, clearly. Verse 47, he says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart, notice, for the abundance of everything. Look, this is how they got there. When they were in a time of abundance, a time of affluence, a time of prosperity, he says, when you had the abundance of everything, at one time the nation began, they were blessed. They were thriving. They were prosperous. They were affluent. But God mentions here, it was because they did not serve God and were not appreciative and thankful to God for the abundance of everything. That was what began to lead to the slippery slope of their downward spiral. Notice, it was in a time of prosperity and abundance that the nation forsook God and was no longer appreciative to God anymore. They began to enjoy all the blessings, but that time of prosperity actually was more dangerous than a time of when they were struggling. And prosperity is like that. A lot of times when life is prospering and things are going well and there's success, that is a more dangerous time for a people than when they're struggling to get by. Because it's a time when it's more easy to sort of just, in a sense, disregard God and, and, and to think somehow that, that we have achieved these things. I mean, listen, quite frankly, I mean, what, what an interesting parallel to the reality, again, uh, what ancient Israel experienced to, to what modern day America is experiencing. You know, why we, did we become such a great and a strong nation? What, what, what was the root of that? What was the initial cause of our blessing and our abundance and our... Well, you know, you ask people today, they rewrite the history, but well, it's because we have free enterprise. It's because, you know, we have this or a strong military. Get real. Who do we think gave us the ideas of those kind of things? 
Where do we draw the concepts and principles and the ethic by which we establish our nation and our government, all those things? From God and from his word. The thing that made us the nation that we were is one nation under God. And the thing that is leading us to bring curse upon our own nation is the very fact that in the midst of our affluence and prosperity, we chose at that point to think that we didn't need God anymore. And that we don't need to serve God anymore or to appreciate or acknowledge God. And we take steps then as a nation toward pride. And the Bible says that pride always comes before a fall, whether personally or whether nationally. So just a good caution and a warning. We have to be careful. If you have a good life, appreciate your good life. Appreciate your good life and recognize the source of that lest your heart begin to gravitate away in unhealthy things. Verse 38, he says, because you did not serve the Lord for the abundance of every good thing, therefore, notice, everybody serves something. Take notice. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies. God says there's an option. You can serve him or you can serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness and in need of everything. And he shall put a yoke of iron. That doesn't sound pleasant on your neck until he has destroyed you. Notice serving anything else in life always leads to destruction. Serving anything other than God always leads to a life that is destroyed. Whether you serve your own self-interests or you serve you know, your own ideologies or you serve anything else, it always leads to a destructive path. God says here, if you don't want to serve me, then I'll let you serve your enemies instead and they'll put a yoke of iron enslavement upon your neck. Now, very interesting. You know, Iron became the symbolic metal of the Roman Empire. And ultimately, when again, the people came back from the Babylonian captivity, a remnant reestablished themselves in the land. Ultimately, as the nation of Israel subtly began to turn their heart away from God, the Roman government in 70 AD, in a sense, took over and overthrew and in a sense began to conquer and to rule Israel once again. And Rome ruled with an iron fist. And it was, a, it was an oppression that they found themselves under, even as in the time of the other captivity in the prior times of Assyria and Babylon. Here, interesting, a reference to this yoke of iron, maybe a, an inference. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream as he saw the different kingdoms symbolically portrayed in that statue and the, there, were, there were the feet of, of iron, the legs of iron, the feet of iron mixed with clay and it was symbolic of the Roman government. And perhaps this is a reference even to that prophetically being described here. The Lord will bring a nation, he says, verse 49, against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, as swift as eagles, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. So again, the idea of of foreign nations coming that they once could resist, but these foreign nations would come and they would be overthrown and conquered again, whether Assyria, Babylon, whatever foreign nations would overcome them as a people. And notice, a fierce nation. The idea is cruel and barbaric. They don't respect the elderly or the young. They're a cruel, barbaric people. And, and, And how sad to see how there are some that want to take over that are just cruel and barbaric. No regard for the elderly, no regard for the youth. Very interesting picture there. Verse 51, And they shall eat the increase of your livestock, produce of your land, until you're destroyed. And they shall leave your grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or offspring or flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust they thought they were safe. They trusted in their own walls. 
you build it high enough, you can protect yourself, right? Come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And again, these things unfolded historically in the time of the siege at Rome. We, there's a story of Masada there when the remnant of 900 or so Jews, zealots tried to, you know, in a sense, keep themselves in Masada. And ultimately, after years, the Romans did that very thing. They built a siege ramp and ultimately, you know, were able to overcome them. They committed suicide because they didn't want to be conquered by the Romans. But again, these very things God describes here happened his historically they happened with the jews these weren't just vain things that god was saying now the hardest part to grasp is prepare yourself these verses ahead this happened as well look what he describes here verse 53 and this actually happened at times historically josephus records it others do you shall verse 53 you shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the lord your god has given you in the siege in desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom and the rest of his children whom he leaves behind so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his own children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set a sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet, the afterbirth after a child is born, and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and in desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. So God describes things becoming so distressful in the time of the siege when they would be starved out as the enemies would surround their territory to take them captive they would become so desperate in their hunger and their starvation that literally, not just cannibalism, but he literally describes parents eating their own children. Read the book of Lamentations. Read, I believe it's 2 Kings 6. There's another that describes Josephus, the historian. These things actually happened historically. Now, I assure you, when the people were hearing these words that they did, were saying, that is disgusting. Are you, there is no way. There is no, I would, I would die. You must, you know, delicate woman among them, it says. I would die before I would eat my own children, kill my own children, and then eat them, and eat them secretly where I won't give any of the, the flesh of their body to my own husband or the other children I have so they can survive. I mean, the epitome of selfishness and just dire straits. And, and to hear that, I would never do that. And the reality, God is saying, listen, when sin begins to get a hold of your life and it begins to put you in the dark and drive you mad and you bring yourself to a place, there is no telling what depths that you would sink to. There's no telling. Again, whether it's what a nation will do, listen, there, there, there is no telling of the depravity that a nation will sink to if it disregards God. And, and for all of our hearts, there is no assurance. Again, that we think, oh, well, I would never do that. 
I would never do that. Listen, I assure you, find anybody who has a horrible addiction, for example, to to drugs, you know, a heroin addict, and ask them if they ever thought that they would become that enslaved and addicted to heroin. And I assure you, they would say to you, I never thought that my life would sink to this depth. I never thought that I would do something like this. You know, because people don't wake up one day and just say, well, I think, I think someday I just want to be so desperate that I will need the drug so bad, I'll steal from my parents. I'll do, I'll do anything just to get my... People never think like that. But what happens? Incrementally, we fail to recognize the darkness and the depravity of our human soul. The Bible says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And there's no telling what extent and what level of filth we are capable of going to when we turn away from God and to realize that reality again these things actually happen I'm sure they never thought they would happen but the further you drift from God there's no telling where a nation or a person could actually go and what they would sink to verse 58 let's wrap this up he says if you do not carefully observe the words of the law that are written in this book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, serious and prolonged sicknesses, as if they haven't got the point yet, right? (laughs) Verse 60, Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were once afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were the stars of heaven in multitude because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Again, their population would decrease. There would be loss. And there's always loss with sin. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you so, the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked off the land which you go to possess. Again, God would put them in the land, but God could remove them out of the land right away as well. It wasn't theirs. It was God's. He let them be his tenants as he gave the land to them. Verse 64, then the Lord will scatter you. The dispersion that happened among the Jews many times throughout history. He'll scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and anguish of soul. Again, the picture there is just distress, desperation just a sense of utter hopelessness and despair life seeming miserable he says verse 65 the lord will give you trembling heart failing eyes anguish of soul your life shall hang in doubt before you and you shall fear day and night the idea is just again is the sin causing just a sense of constant panic because there's instability because the people and the nation know that they're not right with god so there's that that panic of what's going to come next as they've turned away from God and they're sort of doing it on their own. He says, verse uh, uh, 66, your life shall hang in doubt, fearing day and night, no assurance. 67, in the morning, imagine this kind of an existence. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning. (laughs) 
because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of which the sight which your eyes see. I mean, imagine that kind of an existence. You wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I can't wait till it's nighttime. And, and at nighttime you go, I can't wait till it's morning. The idea there is a sense of utter helplessness, hopelessness, just you hate life. You hate life. Oh, I want to sin. I want to disobey God. Okay. You'll hate life. <laughs> it won't be very enjoyable because you'll feel like your life's a waste. In the morning, you'll say, I can't wait till the day's over. In the evening, you'll say, I can't wait till the next day comes because this day was horrible. And which, what the misery that's described there. And again, God doesn't just say these things in vain. I mean, with this lengthy chapter, you think, man, do we really need a 68 verse chapter to describe repetitiously all those things again and again and again and again and again? Well, why does God go to such extent? Because he loves us and he loved his people and he loved the Jews and he loved the nation of Israel and he, and he loves you and I. And he doesn't want to see us experience these things. He doesn't want to see us struggle in that way. Look what he says, verse 68, and the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships. Imagine this, by the way which I said to you, you shall never see it again and there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. We talk about a complete turnaround. God delivers them out of Egypt, delivers them out of bondage, and God says, ultimately, if you stay on that path long enough, what will happen? God says, you'll end up finding yourself going back to the very place you started, back to Egypt, back to that life of bondage and slavery where once you were, and I delivered you out of it, and you'll plunge yourself right back into it. And talk about the, you know, the, the tragedy of lost potential that God had for lives. He says, you'll be sold as male and female slaves, but nobody would even want to buy them. Nobody would even want to buy them. They wouldn't even be purchased as slaves. Why? Because their sin, in a sense, ruined their value and their worth as a person. And, and listen, God loves people. God loves us. And God does not want us to live contrary to His will, to disobey His word, or to disregard what His voice says to us, not because God's got an authority trip. And there's this little rebel in our heart that makes us want to think, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to carve my own path. And the reality is, is look, God's not a control freak. He's a loving father that wants what's best for our life. And he says, look, I don't want you to ruin your life and put yourself in a place where all the value and the worth that you would have had to serve me you trash all the value and the worth of what your life could have been because you sell it over to the enemy and you become so worthless that nobody in the world even wants you. They, don't, they wouldn't even purchase you if they could. And God doesn't want to see us tarnish our lives like that. Boy, what a great reminder how critical it is to listen to God's voice, to obey God's word as individuals, to be advocates that as a nation, that it is wise for us to serve the Lord. It is good for us to obey God. And to recognize that our nation needs God and we are on the course that we are on, not because we don't know how to do economy right or military right, but we are on the course that we're on is because we are pushing God out of our lives as a nation. That is what we need. And what we need is more people to be advocates of that as well, certainly. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's.